Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture in film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. We're currently introducing the small person in my life to the original Muppet movies. They are seven and very particular about their entertainment requirements. I mean, look who they're being raised by. For New Year's, we watched The Great Muppet Caper. Would a kid raised on modern children's bright colors and lightning pace and constant pop culture references be into a 70s caper movie with puppets? Well, at the climax, when Miss Piggy crashes into the Mallory Gallery on a motorbike, they literally stood up, popcorn flying everywhere, raised both fists into the sky and screamed, Let's do this, Miss Piggy! I was so moved, I actually started to cry. And as much as the small one loves Miss Piggy, their favorite Muppet is Animal. We are very big on chaotic good characters. Uh, so we decided to show them the real rock star that Animal was allegedly based on. And in 1967, The Who appeared on the Smothers Brothers variety show. I believe this was their first American appearance. And if you haven't seen the clip, it is essential viewing because it's Roger Daltrey doing his mic tricks and he's singing My Generation and he means it because he is in that generation. It's Pete Townsend in a, like a frilly cravat and like essentially liquid tight pants and he's just bouncing all over the place while playing the guitar and then of course he destroys it at the end and finally it is Keith Moon playing like a mofo and then ending his set by blowing up his drum kit with double the amount of explosives that he usually did. The band dies for cover, Townshend is, has his hair singed and Keith Moon had shrapnel in his arm by the end of it. The small one said in this tiny hushed voice after all that went down, that's rockin'. <laughs> and they are not wrong. <laughs> and we will eventually discuss with them the perils of rock star excess. But for now, it's amazing that 54 years later, those stage antics are still just as effective. Now, both our movies today involve The Who, or people from The Who, and a whole lot of antics. But before we start, what was going on that allowed these destructive weirdos anywhere near not one, but two large budget feature films in the same year? Keith Moon, to me, to connect to another Muppet, I think has a bit of Crazy Harry in him. Mm. Crazy Harry was the Muppet you might not know by name, but he's the one who, who just dynamited everything <laughs> on the Muppet Show. Mm. And there's like a certain energy there that I, I've always thought of like Keith Moon is a bit of animal and a bit of Crazy Harry. Cam, over to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a weird time for rock and roll. Uh, we, we talked a bit about in our 1978 episodes that rock was kind of in a weird place. Uh, a lot of people th thought that rock and roll was like a thing that came and was going potentially. Mm -hmm. Specifically when it came to The Who by 1975, they were essentially on the cusp of retirement, uh, semi-retirement from touring at least. Uh, what They are, were experiencing what we would now call a burnout. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
they essentially uh, so tommy the album had been released in 1969 a rapturous uh reception people loved it uh it was kind of you know it's not the first rock opera but was considered that as a concept uh people just loved a single kind of cohesive concept album from a band they toured the hell out of that uh and their tour went immediately into quadrophenia in 1973 Jesus. yeah that's crazy when you yeah, think about that uh which is crazy and also kind of fascinating now in the breadth of time they hated quadrophenia <laughs> uh pretty much every interview i i'm sure that all of us read at the time they just thought it was junk and it's not made into a film until 79 right yeah, oh yeah yeah so that's kind of their uh comeback after retirement uh but yeah they weren't pleased with it i think that there was concerns that it was getting too far from rock and roll. There's a lot of synth. It's kind of fascinating because they're a band who I guess was constantly told that they're about to break up. Mm -hmm. So it was always a weird thing. And they were really never about to break up. You get the impression that Pete Townsend was really over it. uh, And Roger Daltrey knew that the best way to preserve the band was to like not push him anymore Mm -hmm. and allow everybody to do solo stuff. So Roger Daltrey was doing solo stuff at the time, but with no intention of ever stopping doing The Who. I feel like every interview I read with Roger Daltrey was just him being deeply defensive every second sentence, being like, no, we're not breaking up. We're still together. Everything's fine. Pete's okay. Yes. Though at the same time, I'm shocked about how candid they are about doing bad shows, essentially. Like, and I don't think people thought they were bad shows. They were actually selling out and breaking records constantly. I think they broke a record in North America and in the UK at the Isle of Wight, like right before uh, Tommy. But like, it's fascinating to see him in writing be like, we aren't playing very well live. Mm -hmm. Like that was essentially what they decided. They never broke up, but what they decided was to cease live playing uh, just to kind of like regain their creative juices. And part of their like transition to that was uh to do movies uh to kind of follow their careers i think roger daltrey was a bit more interested in being a movie star than any of the rest of them uh except for maybe keith moon uh which we never really got to find out because of course part of their uh, retirement which never came back was keith moon died uh a couple years after 1975 so um yeah it's this kind of fascinating time where that maybe rock and roll was dying and maybe they had to figure out something new i think they just thought that they needed different creative outlets and film uh, seemed like a great opportunity. And film was going super counterculture at this point. Mm. So that makes sense to me. Whereas, you know, I think the counterculture is kind of over by 78. Like when we talked about um, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, which is produced by the same person as Tommy, uh, Robert Stigwood. But like 75 is really like it's, it's a counterculture year for sure. Oh, yeah. I also think that like it's impossible as a modern person to imagine the album tommy divorced from the movie it's true and like i don't think pete townsend i can't imagine he's getting across his narrative in just the album you know it's such a bizarre and complicated narrative that it to me requires the visuals mm-hmm. uh to make sense of it just a series of songs would be very hard to figure out totally but before we get into that let's give a little bit of context here from where tommy was coming from so john lennon declared that the beatles were bigger than jesus in 1966 and in the mid to late 60s uh, clapton is god graffiti started popping up all over london people still don't know who did that and the musician as a messiah is pretty well trodden ground 
I'm sure when you get big enough with thousands of fans screaming in front of you nightly, telling you that they love you, it must be hard to not let it at least cross your mind that you're something special. And you may not realize what the consequences of your actions could be if it all goes wrong. There's a great story that Elton John tells when he was being interviewed on ABC at the premiere of Tommy that kind of shows how dangerous this kind of thinking can be. So... At one of his concerts, he saw a security person assault a fan who was getting too close. They were trying to take a picture, so the security guard grabbed them, tossed them, smashed the camera, and really hurt the person. Elton saw Red, jumped off the stage, and proceeded to chase the security guard out of the building. And then when he came back, he demanded all security be removed before he continued playing. And then when the security guards left, he announced, this is your show, come as close as you want. This venue held 14,000 people, and they proceeded to do exactly that. That's just irresponsible. Now, fortunately, no one was hurt, but Elton reflected on what a very bad situation that could have been. Making bad choices on a power trip. Isn't that kind of what Tommy is all about? I don't know. Seems like one of those things you can lay any interpretation you want on it. Mm -hmm. Cam, do you want to give us a little plot summary? I mean, uh, well, okay. It's, It's a kind of a long and complicated story. But basically, Tommy is a young boy. He's born... At the end of World War One, his father goes off in World War Two. He is lost. Uh, his mother takes up with another guy. Uh, suddenly, his father reappears. This guy murders his father. Tommy witnesses it. Then, b- due to trauma, he psychosomatically goes uh, deaf, blind, and mute. Then it's kind of his travails as a person who is like that, uh, which includes a lot of abuse from various people in his life. Uh, he eventually finds pinball is his one release uh the ability to feel the ball he's exceptionally good at pinball eventually that makes him very rich and famous and he eventually regains the power of speech and sight and he uh becomes essentially a messiah and eventually his followers turn on him as well. That also frees him at the very end as well, doesn't it? Like, it's kind of like this weird pursuit for freedom. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is a very weird religious allegory. A lot of it's based on the teachings of various gurus. Uh, The big one, Pete Townsend's... This is all mostly written by Pete Townsend with the exception of a couple songs. It's a lot based on the teachings of his personal guru, Mayor Baba, who was a guy who took a uh, oath of silence uh, for 44 years. He was not deaf or blind or mute. <laughs> he just chose to be. But he believed that the whole world was like imaginary mm-hmm. and it's kind of like escaping the cycle of reincarnation and abuse. Uh, it's very fascinating. There's like the teachings of Marshall McLuhan are in yeah. there because that's like vibration is the best kind of communication. Uh, the touch is the purest form <laughs> of communication. Take what you will from it. I think that's kind of Pete Townsend's feelings. It's just like presenting a bunch of stuff. And that's not even mentioning Ken Russell, who throws in the craziest imagery of all time. Like, <laughs> yeah. why, is, why is a church Marilyn Monroe? Like, uh, you figure it out, man. Well, and also, to his credit, because, like, the original Tommy album is just the Who singing and performing those songs. You know, Acid yeah. Queen is a fine song when sung sure. by them. And you get Tina Turner in there doing it. And you're like, oh, that's what it's supposed to sound like. I yeah, see. Yeah, giving, giving LSD to a child. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the Ken Russell connection, and this is the first time we've ever done an episode in probably 
one of the only times where we're going to do an episode where both films are directed by the same person in the same year. So think about that. Like this is 1975. Ken Russell has two films that are released theatrically uh, starring Roger Daltrey (laughs) with songs by The Who. Um, The second one we'll talk about is a little bit different. But for those of of our listeners who don't know Ken Russell... Wow, he is a complex uh, character. That's putting it lightly. Yes, yeah. interesting human being. Uh, he's been called the um, thinking man's stoner director, uh, which I, I think is is accurate. And, you know, by 1975, he was a pretty well-known figure. He's British. Um, thinking about British film in the 60s and 70s, he's one of those very few directors that really allowed English film to graduate kind of from the kitchen sink drama, like very melodramatic, realist films to full blown, like grandiose misanthropy and adultery. And really, really, he's like him and Robert Stigwood, especially as the producer, kind of brought that to the forefront. Well, taking it also from that level up, from that like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, know what I mean? Sort of like, oh, it's a busty woman and she bends over and like that sort of level of comedy into something totally different. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, And also bringing, you know, people like Eric Clapton and Keith, um, I think Keith Moon was always a comedian in some ways, but (laughs) bringing, you know, bringing rock stars that are not known for their comedy or for their film performances into this foray is really interesting. Um, He's some Someone who converted to Catholicism in the 1950s. He was not born Catholic. And I think this is pretty unusual, you know, in in religious history. And so he was always obsessed with these kinds of uh, religious figures. If you look at his filmography before Tommy um, and Litzomania, which we're going to talk about next, this is not the first time he's made a film about an obsessive relationship between the public and a musical figure. He had biopics or loose biopics on Debussy, on Tchaikovsky at this point, on Gustav Mahler. Uh, he was working even on one for Isadora Duncan, who was a wow. dancer and choreographer. This kind of like 19th century, 18th century, even early 20th century performance is what he was obsessed with. And Tommy, as well as Litsomania, is peppered throughout with all of these like religious symbols. And I can see how Catholics probably found this very upsetting, I would assume. <laughs> I've never personally read, um, you know, because the Catholic Church, of course, is always protesting films and very much so still in the 1970s. I imagine this broke them <laughs> at a certain point. Um, but, you know, like in Litsomania, you have um, Ringo Starr as the Pope. In Tommy, as I mentioned, you have Eric Clapton as this like high priest. And it's a great scene where he's surrounded by all these statues, these very grotesque statues of Marilyn Monroe. So you kind of get this like rock and roll 1950s vibe. Leave it to Ken Russell to cast someone like Keith Moon as Uncle Ernie, probably the most concerning character in this film, uh, molests Tommy. Um, and then you have Cousin Kevin, played by Paul Nicholas, who's Paul Nicholas is kind of the MVP for me in these two films. He's we'll amazing in everything yeah. he does. He's one of those guys. He seems like someone who, like, they're like, oh, the person we wanted fell through. What's Paul Nicholas doing? Let's get Paul Nicholas. And he comes in and just knocks it out of the park. Kills like, it. yeah, he's yeah, a I, I, I wasn't super familiar with him. When I Googled him and looked at his like, face, you know, as he aged, I was like, oh, right, that guy. Um, He plays, uh, we'll talk about him in Litsomania because he's incredible. But he plays Cousin Kevin here. Pretty sure Cousin Kevin and Uncle Ernie are likely related. He's this kind of sadist, but <laughs> band to also a guy who also um, abuses um, Tommy and then Anne fucking Margaret as Tommy's mom 
which I'm conflicted about. Like I, so she was nominated for an Academy Award for this film. She won the Golden Globe for this film. I think she's amazing. A lot of the reviews I read and a lot of the almost more contemporary critiques uh, to today of Tommy really criticize her. I don't quite get why. I think it's a difficult, first of all, this is a film that's entirely sung. It's a proper opera. There's very little dialogue. You mm. also have Oliver Reed as his stepfather, who is not known for singing, but was known for doing like The Devils with Ken Russell. Oliver Reed 71. at this point for me yeah. is like the Russell Crowe of the 60s and 70s. I'm I think he's like... better than that, though. I yes. would say he's better than that. And so Anne Margaret, you know, being cast in this is, you know, she was known for singing. She had starred with Elvis. Think about Bye Bye Birdie, which I think is 19. 67 was like a really you know really huge hit for her but this isn't like really her like her forte i would say and i think she's really good in it at one which is weird ken russell said that he cast her specifically because he wanted someone who could sing i think she can sing in this it's i mean i don't know it works for her it works one thing I would probably bring up is in, I think it was just like 73, maybe 72, she had been catastrophically injured in a concert that she performed in. She fell off, um, some rafters collapsed, and she fell, Whoa. Uh, broke her arm, shattered her jaw, and shattered her cheekbone, had her jaw wired for many, many months, really wasn't expected to recover or make a comeback um, in any way where she could sing. So with that in, in the context of this film, that's kind of interesting and, and I, something to keep in mind because um, I do think she's really good. Can we talk about the baked beans? Of course you can talk about the baked beans. And I still can't watch that without feeling incredibly nauseous. So this has been described as Ken Russell's most commercial film, which is... <laughs> <laughs> says a lot when your when your most commercial film and this film was in the top ten in the box office. It was a big, big hit. When your most commercial film includes like a seven minute sequence of Anne Margaret rolling around in an all white carpet full of baked beans, chocolate sauce, and bubbles in different stages, like not all at once, although at some point it gets all mixed in. You know you're you know something's gone horribly wrong in nineteen seventy five and to hear her talk about doing that, she says it was a, a joyous experience. She said she had a lot of fun doing it with the exception of the fact that apparently because she throws a, a champagne bottle at a TV mm-hmm. and then all this stuff explodes out of the television, there was still broken glass on the carpet, and she didn't know that. And so as she's rolling around, she actually sliced her hand pretty badly and ended up having to get twenty three stitches. But aside from that, she said it was great. <laughs> so- it is um, I think I think, Cam, you saw this film before, long before I did in prepare, preparing mm-hmm. for the TV show. And I remember you telling me about the baked beans scene and I saved it because I was like, I'm really, really excited. And while watching it, I, I messaged him because it was like an hour and 20 minutes in and I hadn't seen the baked beans scene yet. And I was worried that the file I was watching, it had yeah. mysteriously <laughs> been cut or something. And then no, no. and then it very much happens. I mean, it's just a bunch of crazy sequences, essentially. Yeah, because yeah, that's like way late. Tommy's almost a messiah at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's yeah, I mean, it, that's that's the thing is like this movie has so many kind of side roads. That aren't in the album. A whole story for the mother. You get a whole story for the the stepfather. You get a whole story for Uncle Ernie. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, I think I read that, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you're more familiar with the album, probably both of you. In the rock opera, it's not, it's not the stepfather who murders the father who's returned home from the war. It's, it's vice versa. So the father survives, murders his wife's, lover Mm -hmm. although the wife i believe it's assumed he's dead like he dies um he's an raf he dies in in combat 
So it's like, it's really been switched around. So this film is actually giving Oliver Reed a huge part that does not exist yeah. in the rock opera whatsoever. Again, not a singer. I think you know, he kind of speaks a lot of his lines, but he's so, he's just such a presence on film that it kind of works for me. I, I, Becky, I, I get the sense well, it doesn't. That's why he was allowed to continue to do what he was doing, regardless of his antics and the severe, severe yeah. alcoholism and his behavior. And it's because he was really something incredible and special. And who knows if he hadn't had a crippling addiction, what he would have been really capable yeah. of. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I find it interesting in the relationship with him and Ken Russell is Ken Russell has a great quote saying, you do not say cut to Oliver, you say, please, shall we stop filming now? Please, Oliver, have you anything <laughs> further to say, Oliver? Which I'm like, yeah. okay, that's got to be a set. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of these are also performances that are essentially silent performances, right? Because point. they were looping their songs later and stuff. Other than, I mean, obviously, the fascinating story is that Anne Margaret just came in one day and knocked out the entire film in one sitting, which is pretty yeah, amazing. She's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, but I think that that's where Oliver Reed works is the, the faces and stuff he makes and i think yeah. that they all really find the level that ken russell wants you, you get the impression like fascinating interviews with roger daltrey like number one there's an interview with roger daltrey where they make it sound so miserable his onset thing. there's just an interviewer talking to him and, and in the two days they're there they're like they sprayed a whole pond's worth of water on him <laughs> they got him to jump out a window onto a mattress and he missed the mattress and got a concussion oh and God. something else and he describes himself in that interview as the most expensive prop in cinema history <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that he was like, hey, Ken, you want to make another movie? Makes you think that they all really clicked. Like, as wild, like Ken Russell's a madman, too. Oh, God, I mean, yeah. he's he was on Celebrity Big Brother. He's a guy who kind of never, like, I think his most commercial movie is Altered States, yeah, which is still probably, pretty yeah. weird. That's probably true. That's later. I, it made less money than this, probably. But he's a guy who never stopped being Ken Russell, essentially. So I don't think he was necessarily a hugely easy guy to get along with. No. Hugh uh, Hugh Grant was on Mark Maron's podcast um, this month. For whatever reason, Mark Maron asked him a lot about Ken Russell because sure. Hugh Grant, of course, is in The Lair of the White Worm, which one of my one of my favorite horror films. Um, really early Hugh Grant, I would ima yeah. imagine. I think it's yeah. like his second feature. I think it's like yeah, real I think early. it's before Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yeah. Man, the stories, I won't spoil, but the stories that Grant very respectfully told about Ken Russell, who by the 90s was a complete drunkard mm -hmm. and abusive and not not a great dude kicked off celebrity big brother it should be said he didn't make it a week in the big brother house before producers <laughs> removed him for getting into an altercation oh jesus oh, yeah we'll let i mean i'll let listeners do their own uh, research on ken russell he's no longer with us no. his death was quite controversial his estate was quite controversial his legacy is quite controversial he's a fascinating figure oh, yeah. to me um if you are interested in more ken russell i think cam you're right altered states is a really good place to go wonderful sci-fi i like the devils personally oh, the devils, yeah. is, the devils my is probably his i was just gonna film, say the but... devils i have never seen anything like the devils you can definitely <laughs> oh dig God. in uh, like a fascinating one that comes up but doesn't really have an impact anymore is uh the twiggy starring version of the boyfriend was oh, very huge uh, in the 70s okay. Even though I think it's kind of considered a shrug these days and was was critically lambasted in its day. Uh, but yeah, you can really dig in. And I mean, we're going to talk more about his early stuff. 
but he's obsessed with actors yeah. and musicians. Well, it's the and... kind of people he surrounded himself with. Like when you think about the very idea of now getting a movie insured, let alone even proposing oh, to yeah. make it, of with Keith Moon and Oliver Reed and him all in the same film, you could never get that mm. made. Like that's insane. Oh no, and I mean the interesting thing is, like like I said, he he's a guy who was always Ken Russell never stopped being Ken Russell until no. uh, the day he died, which is quite fascinating because essentially there was you can track there was a time when people had money to be interested in that and there was a time like there was actually two times really because it's like the 80s and and the 70s 60s but towards the end of his career he just made these movies that were essentially him with a tv cam inviting friends over to his house and making a movie i watched the fall of the Louse of usher which is one of his oh later my. ones and it's literally just people at his house and he so it's like a guy who is like listen i he, i'm never not going to make stuff on my own i get full control and the way he decided to get full control was just do it himself at his house and it's like it, it'll be the cheapest thing ever yeah i don't care i just want to do it my he way he had amazing friends and that's how jack nicholson mm. comes to this film because oh, 1975 yeah. we have one flew over the cuckoo's nest jack nicholson wins academy award we are going to talk in the next episode on jack nicholson in the passenger michelangelo antonioni huge film and nicholson has a very small interesting role where i believe it is him singing uh in this film mm -hmm. and he he said the reason he wanted to do it was that he he found ken russell such an interesting figure because he hated half of his films and absolutely was obsessed with the other half and wanted to see yeah. what could happen and i'm just like oh my god like, so well they i mean what a boon for tommy though because they used his, the promotional stuff from yeah. jack nicholson like yeah. i was looking at um they went these... that day yeah. purposefully I, and i think that that was uh, the producers did that they brought the press on the day and jack nicholson only filmed for like two hours yeah. too didn't yeah. he? i think it's he did a like super small role two takes well, and even then in the, like, when you look at the, like, newspaper ads, it's him doing that little smiley half wink eyebrow raise thing. And it's Tommy yeah. underneath. And you're like, he's in this for three minutes. Yeah. Like, it's oh, wild. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, my my favorite weird Ken Russell thing is just also being, like, I think one of the, you know, the crazy Ken Russell thing is his ability to just move people around. I mean, beyond putting, like, Keith Moon in for the song that Keith Moon wrote, <laughs> which is such a weird part, and figuring out that he probably would have been a great actor yeah. if we kept up with him. But he also did stuff like he was obsessed with Christopher Lee being the doctor, which eventually is what Jack Nicholson was. But Christopher Lee got stuck uh, shooting Man with a Golden Gun in Thailand. So that's why Jack Nicholson came in very last minute and shot for like an hour <laughs> one day but it ended up being this huge boon so that's and i think that's all ken russell yeah. you know pulling those weird strings and robert stigwood i think we've found that if anyone can get people to show up for cocaine <laughs> when one day on set it's robert stigwood yes refer to our episode for 1978 on beatles movies to get that backstory the Elton John sequence, which I think is probably the only We haven't main... even talked about it yet. Yeah, I think it's the only sequence I kind of knew going into this film. I um, think sure. it's the only one anyone knows. They know the song because he made the song a mega hit. Yeah. It is something. And, you know, this this piano, which it, it's a pinball machine that's transformed into Elton John's piano, is pure Elton John. Like, it's Elton John as himself in a way that I would say is not true of Eric Clapton or Tina Turner or the other musical performances mm -hmm. in this. Like, this is Elton John at his height. Although he had many heights. Has, literally. Has many heights. He is literally at his <laughs> height. He's he has on platforms on. Yeah, he's a, he has these crazy, um, I think they're oh, PVC yeah. or fiberglass made giant boots that are based on a cherry red Doc Martin. 
that the Doc Martin founder eventually bought these shoes and they're like on display permanently at a museum in England. But yeah. uh, I actually thought they were at the Badashi Museum, which I record this podcast a block away from the Badashi Museum. So I was trying <laughs> to like search their collections and they have different Elton John boots. But um, God, yeah, this this pinball wizard sequence where you have, you know, members of the Who playing in the background and Elton John in the kind of Roger Daltrey role of singing. It looks incredible. Like, I get it. I get, like, that is to me the synthesis of what Ken Russell was trying to go for. And whether he's successful or mm-hmm. not, that sequence is very successful and really defines for me, like, if I have to pick something for 1975, I might pick that sequence to define it. Oh, yeah. I want to argue that this film is the pinnacle of rock and roll, of, like, period. Yeah. Like, this is where rock and roll kind of ends. Because 1975 is a, a weird year where, like, we talked about disco coming in and it reaching its pinnacle in 78, and in 79 it was gone. But 75 is when it was really starting to take over the airwaves. That's when Jive Talkin' hit, and, like, that was just game-changing. So there was a musical award show to try and bring rock and roll back called the Rock Music Award that was hosted by Elton John and Diana. Ross that year (laughs) and they come out on like a bedazzled golf cart onto the stage Diana Ross is pregnant with her first child is wearing this giant yellow like big bird outfit like it's huge and gorgeous I've seen photos of that that outfit is I believe Bob Mackie people might get mad at me for that being wrong but I believe it's like a very famous Bob Mackie Big Bird Diana Ross uh, mashup it's gotta be and he introduces himself as being hi I'm Captain Fantastic and then she says and I'm General Delivery and that's how the show opens and it just gets weirder from there they were promoting Tommy so Roger Daltrey and and Margaret come out on like a fully glittered out <laughs> yeah. fire, truck. fire truck like yeah. this thing is bonkers and they're giving away things called the Rockies and there's a podium that like mm. lights up like R2D2 that delivers like the winners and in the in the audience are people like Ella Fitzgerald and you're like what is going well, on well well Becky acid was a lot different back then than it yeah. is today well I also <laughs> I also just think that weirdly doing this series has made me realize that there is like because rock is such an amorphous category that I think True. that there's just like movements in rock history. And I think you're right that there was this, and it's what they're talking about with the death of rock and roll in 1970, whatever is like, it's a, just a death of a certain style. Cause of course there was rock music in the 1980s, but it was a different thing, right? Like when you think of, you know, poison or whatever, that's not the same. But this um, also incorporates yeah. different things that are coming to an end. Like you talked about, you know, the disillusionment with gurus, which everybody, was oh, into sure. in like the late 60s early 70s the beatles really kind of kicking yeah. that off in the, the mainstream who also famously hated woodstock they're like the <laughs> one band that was like woodstock was terrible what are you like they're like i get they're like i, I hope uh, everybody enjoyed themselves but uh, they were like our experience was awful it was not a good concert uh, we barely got paid. When I was watching this, I couldn't help but think of the 1972 documentary Marjo. Uh, have you guys seen this one? No. Oh, no. guys, go, go, go. This is this is my gift to you. Go watch Marjo. Um, <laughs> because it is the um, interviews that were done. Sarah Kernikin is one of the co-directors. I do not remember who her other director was. And they followed around this guy who was the youngest preacher ever. He was four years old when he started. And now he's in his, I believe he's in his late 20s. And he's trying to make it in Hollywood. So he... he 
basically brings them into all of these different like evangelist meetings and things and shows them all the tricks of how he makes his money oh, uh, yeah. on this circuit. It is amazing. And Marjo Gottner eventually would go on to star in a bunch of B-movies. Fascinating human being. Mm-hmm. But this documentary really blew open a lot of stuff. It won the Academy Award that year for Best Documentary. Um, and hmm. when I'm watching this, I can't help but think, oh, that they saw this and there's an influence here because it's all that ending of this spirituality and religion and, you know, blowing the stuff I off. I see that, yeah. That's a great point. Well, speaking of uh, spirituality and obsession, should we move to our next film? I think that's a great idea, Alicia. So our next movie also stars Roger Daltrey and is titled After the Phenomenon Where a Fandom Was Going Bananas Over a 19th Century Composer. Huh, kind of like modern-day rock star fandom. Oh, wait, I see what you did there, Ken Russell. Will it throw us into a frenzy? That's coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Movie props go missing from film sets all the time, and they often turn up in weird places. The Hoggle animatronic from Labyrinth was discovered in a lost airline shipping container in Alabama 18 years after it went missing. The original Death Star model was found in a country music bar called Star World in Missouri being used as a trash can. My personal favorite is someone stole two fiberglass cows from the set of World War Z in Scotland. They have as of yet to be found, but I'm sure they will have a story to tell when they are once again discovered. So I'd like to think that somewhere out there, squirreled away in a Nana's attic, is the horse-sized penis that Roger Daltrey sits astride as it races towards a spread eagle Sarah Kesterman waiting on the other side of a guillotine. That one day someone will pull out an amorphous red inflatable and expand it on their front lawn during the holiday season only to discover it is a bouncy castle-esque lady groin clad in red silk panties and fishnets. I personally would have absconded with the bedazzled metronome which kicks off the timing of the frenzied film you're about to experience. It's a movie whose tagline is it out Tommy's Tommy. <laughs> Let's talk about Listomania. I'm going to say I want the piano key bathrobe that Roger Daltrey oh, yeah. is wearing as, uh, as as Franz Litzt. That's kind of my favorite item of this. And I think the most practical that if you had it, Agreed. you could work it into your decor and your your everyday wardrobe. Well, the metronome, I would just like put it like right at the front door and I'd be like, oh, you just took off your yeah. shoes, just place them next to the bedazzled metronome. Like it would become an immediate thing I'd point out when people walked into my home. It's a cute one. Does it not also have a penis on it though? Yeah, there's, <laughs> it's... I thought that the thing is a penis. Yeah, the, ticker, yeah. the ticker's a penis <laughs> yeah. for sure. Of course yeah. it is. So this is Litzomania we're talking about, which went into production just two weeks before Tommy was released. So both of these films are 1975, as we've already stated. If Tommy was, you know, in the top 10 
really, really important as an underground midnight film, but also had commercial appeal. Litsomania was the opposite of all of that. <laughs> Although I do think, and I haven't talked to either Becky or Cam in advance of this, I do think there's merits to this film, but it, it, oh, it's yeah, less yeah. successful. This for me is really where Ken Russell meets his most Fellini-esque-ness. I think it's okay. really here in Litsomania. And Litsomania is, is a real term that was coined, I believe, in the 19th century to describe mm -hmm. the unbelievable um, appeal that the composer Franz Liszt had in the, uh, in the 19th century, that women were fainting at his performances, that, you know, yelling his name. That It was really, un it, was, it wasn't the first time, but one of the first, where you had this this god, this sort of, obsessive what we would call a rock star except you know 200 years ago Beatlemania the concept is based on Litsomania yeah which I actually didn't even piece that together that's interesting yeah that makes sense but um and if we're gonna talk about Beatlemania well we, we, we we've got Ringo Starr in this film as the Pope <laughs> yes so you still have that kind of Catholic um obsession that Russell has with idolatry and you see where he's actually include like include russian iconographs russian icons that are actually like the paintings of members of the who and, and rock stars this is loosely based on a, a book a t kiss and tell book that was written by one of franz litz lovers which i kind of love um, those aren't new those aren't new at all they are not <laughs> they've been around for a long time they yeah. are not um he was a bit of a lothario in real life i would say some of his very famous lovers included george sand um, one of my favorite historical figures of all time, Lola Montez, uh, was one of his very famous lovers. And you see, you see bits of these two women, but mostly you see the mother of his children, who he was not married to, um, who was a countess. And you also see his Russian, kind of evil, hellish other mistress. <laughs> I didn't bargain for this! The bargain was of your own making. I have given you the power of Orpheus, the power to make music to soothe the savage beast. You said you would sell your soul for such a gift. Give anything. And most importantly, his antagonistic relationship slash frenemy stuff with uh, Richard Wagner. Besides being German, Richard has something else in common with Beethoven. He's a bleeding genius. <laughs> How do I know? You told me so yourself, didn't you, Richard? Who is played by Paul Nicholas, who you'll remember as Cousin Kevin and Tommy. And it is, I mean, things get things get kooky. If you thought Tommy was kooky, <laughs> yeah. and I mean, Becky, you described it best. The giant fiberglass. I, I'm guessing they use the same fiberglass provider as Elton John's pinball wizard boots. Giant <laughs> oh, sure. fiberglass sure. penis being thrust in hell through a guillotine with all these women, all his lovers, ready to chop off the tip of his penis while Roger Daltrey has lits is just screaming no. Like it's... What about yeah. the room full of gas spewing asses? Like, oh, they're sure. all mounted now... on the wall. Like, this just is wild. Yeah. I wonder, uh, Elton John demanded to keep the boots as a part of why he agreed to the movie, so I wonder if Roger Daltrey kept the penis. Yeah. <laughs> it's gotta life. be somewhere. And all those, like, uh, dick plinths and, like, columns, mm. like, it's uh, that's gotta be in someone's living room. I keep picturing yeah. the hormone monster from Bad Mouth, and I guess yes. this might yeah. be his favorite film. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean oh, this, yeah. this movie is crazy because yeah, it's it's almost as high budget seeming yes. as uh, Tommy. 
and probably again you're right it's probably one of his most expensive movies and yet it's so much weirder because it's just pure ken russell it's based on a 54 page script yeah. which is crazy yeah, there was no it's, script, it's prog rock it's all, mostly uh the composer is the guy from yes rick wakeman Wait, rick wakeman who also plays thor <laughs> yes yeah look at my creation plants isn't he superb such power such majesty such grace <laughs> And the parallels to Rocky, too, the fact that this came out in the same year as Rocky and there's like an mm. Ultraman and he's trying to build that. I, I mean, we're going to get into the Nazi stuff in a minute, but it's, it's very similar to Rocky Horror. That's a very good Yeah, point. I didn't think of that either. But yes, it's I know, it's this horny, weirdly. Well, it's This is definitely where, because Ken Russell's also been called the great Vulgarian of cinema. And mm-hmm. I'm like, if you had to pick his mm, sure. most vulgar film... <laughs> It's probably not <laughs> the devils. There. It's probably yeah. this for the reason. Par- part of me also wonders, like, there might be a more vulgar one. I haven't it's seen. True. I haven't Ken seen... Russell's that kind of director. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen all of Ken Russell. I love when Litz is playing. Um, you see him playing for the first time at the concert, and all the women are going insane, and they just start chanting "chopsticks, chopsticks, I didn't know the origin of chopsticks like, as a child it's a, even if you don't know how to play piano you know how to do chopsticks and to see that in this film made me laugh so much there's so many references you're right to like body stuff and I mean there's fascinating things to know he originally wanted Marty Feldman to play Wagner which mm. is kind of a fascinating difference but you get the idea of how maybe wacky it could have even been yeah and he also has stuff like I mean the movie starts like a carry-on movie where he's just kissing a woman's boobs and I mean there's so much boob stuff and then also there's the weird I love and I had to look it up because this movie predates the Dukes of Hazard, and yet oh, it has a Dukes of Hazard esque. But it also has the part where it's like, "Well, looks like Franz Litz got himself in a mess of trouble," <laughs> and it's like that predates Dukes of Hazard. Did this movie make up Dukes of Hazard? I mean, coming somehow? coming back to your point, Becky, on Rocky Horror Picture Show, Little Nell, who plays Columbia, yes, is yes. very very briefly in this as one of his lovers. I think she's completely nude. You don't see her in clothes at any point in this film but uh just to like you know really hammer home what ken russell's going for he's casting someone who is super famous for rocky horror picture show at this point in this film so i mean that is a really good point of i read an interview with her where she was actually very disappointed because she was so excited that she got a bedroom scene with roger daltrey and he was super distracted because his wife was giving birth that day and oh. so she didn't really get to talk to him and he was apparently like is in his own little world and yeah so he was, I... she was like i was really excited it's interesting that all the russian iconography is in this film because i really think of ken russell in this Svengali role mm. and Roger Daltrey as like the poor you know Russian countess the uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that is like completely like at because why what, Roger Daltrey get your priorities straight if your wife is giving birth that day yeah like you can take right. tell Ken ten, tell that Rasputin or Svengali that you can take a break <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i mean also to know that i read that interview where he's he seemed and like the the reviewer is like roger daltrey is very much out of his depth and he's just being abused and then it's like you want to do another movie immediately yes sir <laughs> yes, and, and, and i mean as much as we're saying that this is full of nude women and, and all sorts of body stuff i mean both of these movies also sexualize the hell out of i don't think roger daltrey has a full shirt on nope. in either of these no. movies for more than a few minutes it's like he he is very and nude it's important a to lot. remember that like this is he's someone who would have been on a poster in teenage girls or preteens mm. even's bedrooms like he really was 
like the a heartthrob of the 1970s beyond being a rock. He was life. the Franz Liszt of the 1970s. <laughs> exactly. I also want to be clear that as much as that uh, we talk about the excesses of like Keith Moon and Pete Townsend, who were both addicts in, in different ways, uh, Roger Daltrey was sober for yeah. all yeah. of this, which I is think Pete just wild. Townsend was sober by this point too, maybe. His guru is all about that. It's partially the Acid Queen stuff is he's he very much, his guru very much believed that psychedelics would not open your mind. They would actually cut you off from God. Mm. So uh, you, you're like not supposed to do drugs. So unless he was a bad follower of Baba. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I really loved, and I, I this sent me down a total rabbit hole, this film. Sure. Again, I love Lola Montez. Wish she had a bigger role in this. There is a lot of, um, there's a, actually a film in the 50s from Max Ophuls called Lola Montez where Litz plays a very prominent role. I, I'd recommend that if anyone's interested in her. But uh, I did not know, and I, I'm not someone who knows a lot about composers, but I did not know that Litz's daughter, Cosima, who you see in this film, played by an 18-year-old Veronica Quiglin, who's really good. She looks 12. She's like 12 going on 18. Yeah. I didn't know that she left her husband, who was a pretty famous composer, and then married Richard Wagner and became kind of like the controller of his image into the 1940s, um, long after he died. Like, this was not actually, I didn't know that connection to Richard Wagner and Litz myself. And this film makes that so interesting. This actress who plays Cosima has this really great line. They're like, I think Wagner has found them, like, um, they're in Hungary and there's a, a war. And they're like in a trench and she's got a baby and they're, they're like, Wagner steals a flask of, uh, I think a grain alcohol from her. And she's like, leave some for baby. Punk. And it's just like, like <laughs> that line stayed with yeah. me so much. I mean, eventually she's going to leave her husband and marry this man who's stolen her infant's flask. I don't know what's happening, but yeah, there's, I mean, there's a very weird, I will say the movie is, I think you said before, Ken Russell is obsessed with with artists and composers and actors, but specifically he had all these composer movies. And this one is the one that is the least, I think, concerned with history. Yeah. Like, it tickles your brain to be like, oh. But it's like, yeah, it's about a war between Wagner and Liszt, who traditionally are the two guys on one side of the War of the Romantics. They were buddies and like you could be like this should be about like uh him versus strauss or something yeah, but, but i think this is this is the point bad. where we should probably bring this in where um yeah. so he did have a whole series of composer films that he made this is the one that killed it there was intending to be more yes. before this he six was, more yeah before this he was going to be making one about gershwin with al pacino as gershwin yes. which that that had to get put on the back burner because Pacino was busy. I mean, it got put into the uh, fire. He never <laughs> yes. made another composer movie. No. But I, I started watching, I haven't seen Mahler, but I started watching the trailer for it. Mm. And again, here's a whole bunch of Nazi imagery. And this has a ton of Nazi imagery, which makes sense because Wagner was an anti-Semite. I think that, that, I think that the way that it completely paints him as a Nazi is uh, ahistorical. Yeah, it's one-dimensional. Yeah. Like, Wagner Wagner had one weird essay about being anti-Semitic and I like looked into it because I'm like I'm pretty sure this is because number one 
very important to say Wagner died uh, six years before Hitler was even born. Wagner was Hitler's favorite, which is uh, a huge thing. There's actually a great, if you're interested in Wagner and Nazism, there's a great documentary by Stephen Fry where he oh. tries to contend with the fact that he is Forgot a Jew and he loves Wagner yeah. uh, and like how much it was. So like, I mean, there's, there's historians that think that Wagner was Jewish. Mm-hmm. And I think much like when we talked about with Christopher Columbus, you, you know, the horrors of Columbus something like Columbus chopping off uh, indigenous people's hands. It's like, well, they chopped off people's hands in Spain. And the unfortunate thing is Wagner wrote an anti-Semitic essay and it's like, well, you know who else was anti-Semitic? Franz Liszt, uh, yeah. pretty much all the composers. Yeah, which certainly if we're <laughs> like, talking uh, about the 19th century, which yeah. was the fashion of the time to be anti-Semitic yes. as well. Like we think of it as yeah. very 1930s. It goes far, far, far further oh, yeah. than that. Yeah. But I also think it's like to tie him specifically to the Nazis is a bit rough because he predated it and unfortunately it's just like hitler loved him and hitler drove him into the ground it's impossible to remove the music of wagner from nazism but it's i think it's a little rough to be like he's a he's a frankenstein nazi yeah he becomes i swear (laughs) to god paul nicholas as as richard wagner becomes all at once a frankenstein monster and actually hitler like with the mustache with the swastika with it's it's a pastiche like no yeah. other <laughs> and i mean it's also seemingly jumps to world war ii because yes. he's like destroying berlin 40 years after he's and, died and lists is a magic angel in heaven building a voltron of all his sexual partners so it's like uh, <laughs> i mean no one is taking this as serious history to be fair but i do think it's kind of wild how much it's it's kind of like it's their music it's not yeah. them it's the ideas which is fun don't get me wrong but I, you do kind of worry when the <laughs> probably this has got to be one of the biggest Wagner movies, right? I think, I don't think so. Vi- Outside of like the yeah. silent era, I mean, it's the same thing that kind of happens sure. with Fritz Lang, right? Because Hitler really liked Metropolis, or you know, mm-hmm. he also liked Caligari. Never verified, right? That's not in writing ever has yeah. that appeared. But like then it became <laughs> kind of this myth that um, these were Nazi films, which they are very the- much not. And of course, Lang does a number of films using Wagner music. It's it, this is all like so intense. It's intense to kind of conceptualize this film. I love the Voltron reference with all his lovers. Yeah. Do you time. think it's intended to be a double entendre? The fact that he's flying an organ. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think if anything, I'm missing double entendres in this film. Yeah, there's there, there, it's wall to wall double entendres. But yeah, too many. I, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, arguably, this film has too many, I would say. <laughs> it probably has quadruple entendres also. But yeah, I, I mean, we talked a bit with the Nazi stuff and the imagery and kind of the obsession with it in the 1970s. Uh, there was an interesting, going back, you guys talked about uh, Ilsa Shoewolf of the SS. And there was an interesting interview with the star of that where people were kind of like, why, you know, why, why did this pop? Why mm-hmm. did this make money? Uh, like, do people not find it repulsive? And she said that, the fascinating thing to her was remembering back then that that Nazism seemed historical. It seemed like a thing that was gone. Yeah. Because this even predates a lot of the kind of rise of like the National Front in the UK and mm-hmm. skinhead stuff. So there was to her, she's like, there was a time in the 70s where this seemed like you were dressing up like a pirate or oh. whatever, you know, it seemed mm-hmm. like this was a concept that was there and then gone. And she's like, weirdly, in retrospect, that's so hopeful. Like that is so it's such a nice thought that we thought 
that Nazism had come and gone yeah. and this is now a thing we could make fun of. It's kind of hard. Like, I, I enjoyed watching this film. And Tommy I had to watch multiple times because I was like, what the fuck did I just watch? Um, and I feel like I've only watched this once, but I'm probably going to have to watch it again. I do find it hard to watch this particular aspect of this film in 2021, knowing mm-hmm. that, oh, how wrong were they? Nazism yeah. is very much back and yeah. um, a political movement that's been approved yeah. and... <laughs> followed and and yeah it's it's hard to watch something it is but it also it underscores the point that this is almost a 50 year old film you know we're talking about a half century ago which is kind of crazy to think rock and roll and the who are are from that era i also think that there's like there's kind of this fascinating coming and going of uh knowledge of the holocaust because i mean you you talk about north america that a lot of people like it took showa which is 1985 Mm -hmm. for a lot of people to like really connect with survivors of the holocaust Mm. uh, and kind of the level of the horrors involved so i think that sometimes there are eras where you know yeah, Nazi Nazism can be kind of goofy. I mean, I, I read a thing that made me laugh that apparently Hitler loved Wagner so much that other Nazis hated it. Like, there's like <laughs> Goebbels' journal is like friggin' Hitler made us watch another Wagner. Like, can you imagine your boss forcing you to watch Gotterdammerung? It's like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> we get it. Bob yeah, we the get dragon. It, right. <laughs> yeah, cool. Uh, the ring makes him disappear. Yeah, I. Uh, so I don't know. It's it's a uh, yeah. It's very fascinating, and I. It, well, this is obviously digging too deep too, because by the time Nazi Frankenstein shows up, you're so <laughs> like, oh, well, sure, great. It's so um, Rocky Horror in that moment. Like, it is yeah, so so Rocky Horror. This is like what I, I understand. Like, there's no way this could have ever been a commercial midnight hit the way that Rocky Horror no. was, or the way that Tommy was. There's just too much. It's worth saying this was number one at the box office for two weeks in oh. the United Kingdom. Okay, Only the United me. Kingdom. But uh, but I think it, it came out simultaneously with Tommy even. Like, I think Tommy was still doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say <laughs> it saying it out, Tommy's Tommy, is not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do want to bring us just quickly into uh, David Putnam and Good Times, oh, yeah. because apparently this is one of the reasons why this film is as wacky as it is and why it was one of the last mm. movies, because David Putnam was involved with Ken Russell's whole series of composer movies. And then Alicia, you know what the next movie it was that uh, David Putnam was going to produce? I am scared to ask. I know his production company is called Good Times, and I'm like, this man did never make a good time. <laughs> like the devils and scary things oh, like that. Oh, no, he did. Bugsy Malone. Bugsy what? Malone is the very next movie. <laughs> and I will say, so you would be fascinated to know, I believe Bugsy Malone is the last one he made with Good Time. <sighs> and it, it's like interesting because he had this huge fight with Ken Russell. And Ken Russell, I think, seems to seem to carry a lot of uh, animosity towards David Putnam. Mm-hmm. And you're like, a uh, meddling producer. But then David Putnam goes on to produce... Chariots of Fire, hmm. The Duelists, Local Heroes, The eh, Killing Fields, and The Mission. <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, maybe he knew what he was doing, man. Yeah. <laughs> that guy went on to win God knows how many Oscars. Oh uh, Bugsy so, Malone. Yeah. Those movies are are credited with essentially saving the British film industry. They're, hmm. They are what created prestige British film throughout the 80s and 90s. Hmm. So it's like, because I, I don't think he did a bad job on this. Like, uh, I think this is a fun movie. It's too bad it didn't make the money back it's too bad that these guys fell out because they yeah yeah, it's a great producer and a great director i would love i I, this is like such a broken radio but i would love to see this on the big screen in a proper restoration it's i know like we have had this film on hollywood suite and it is Mm -hmm. in seemingly hd but i mean like 
a proper, proper restoration. Um, I would love to see this and how this would play very differently than watching this on a computer screen. Well, or the group of people, too, as you watch people react to this stuff, being like, hold on, did that just happen? Yeah. Did that just And yeah. it's like a collective fever dream in the audience, and that would be so much fun. Yeah, you don't want to be alone watching this at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday <laughs> when that penis goes through a guillotine. You want yeah. some people to bounce off of. <laughs> All right. I, I don't think we can top that. So once again, I want to thank our fabulous guest. Yes, Alicia Fletcher. Thank you, as always. Thank you, Becky. I will not be eating baked beans ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I never ate them before. Okay. Not my thing. Full Eng- I want like a three-quarter English breakfast, mm-hmm. not a full mm-hmm. English sure. breakfast. Cameron Maitland, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I guess you can just get baked beans shot at you out of a can. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems so uncomfortable. You'd be finding them in all sorts of places. All, I don't all like the it. crevices. <laughs> And on that note, join us again next week as we head to Italy to look at a movie that Ebert thought was perhaps the ultimate black comedy. Will we laugh with it, at it, or just stare in horror? That's coming up next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.